Well, in leadership class, during our equipping hour this morning, we had two presentations, one about William Tyndale, the other by Hudson, about Hudson Taylor. And really both of those men and their ministries come together in the passage that we have before us this morning, a privilege to come to God's word. William Tyndale being used by God to bring New Testament to us in the English language, and then Hudson Taylor, uh, one of those who brought the gospel overseas. We're going to see how both of that unite in our text. Don't join me in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, we are picking up where we left off uh, last week. John chapter 14, we're looking at verses 12 through 14. We'll really only be able to get through verse 12 this morning, though, where we find Here are two more stunning promises from the lips of Jesus. This is Jesus' farewell address to his apostles. He's preparing them for his departure, explaining what life will be like without him by their side, why they need not fear or be troubled. And he gives a series of promises Let's pick it up in verse 12. We'll read through verse 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. That's a stunning promise. Believers here promise to do even greater works than Christ, greater than healing the sick, greater than raising the dead. And then Jesus adds, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Another stunning promise. Promise that Jesus will hear his apostles in their cries and in their concerns and always give his people what they need, always. These are promises that continue Jesus' command in verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Repeated in verse 27, do not let your heart be troubled. Why, Jesus? Why can we remain calm and confident in you? Well, he's giving the reasons, the reasons we need not fear giving us the reasons why we can follow Christ with calmness, unafraid of the unknown future, not shaken by the sorrows and pain and heartache and loss that are inevitable in this life. Now, as we come to these specific promises, and again, these are only two of 12. There's 12 total promises in this chapter. We just read two of them. Understand the transition Jesus is making in verse 12. In verses 1 through 11, Jesus has focused on the promise of heaven. He's easing his apostles' troubled hearts. How? By promising them that his father's house will be their future home. That's the first promise. His father's house will be their future home. That's verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. 
and I go to prepare a place for you. Here's the promise. Verse three, I will come again and receive you to myself. The promise of an eternal home that this world cannot take away. Christ will be there in his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. It's a promise of being in the Father's presence in heaven forever. Which then leads to the follow-up in verses 8 through 11. Another promise, this time a promise of eternal security. That Jesus' unity with the Father guarantees our acceptance by the Father. It's a second promise. Jesus' unity with the Father guarantees our acceptance by the Father. The guarantee that nothing can separate us from the eternal love and heavenly promises of Christ. That the Father will always welcome all who the Son brings to him in glory. And why is that the case? Why is this a guarantee? Because it's based upon the Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son. That's why Jesus says in verse 10, the words that I say to you, the promise of this future heavenly home, in verses two through seven, that promise I do not speak on my own initiative. My promise of heaven is not just my promise of heaven. It's my Father's promise as well. Why? Because of verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That is to say, the Father and the Son are so united that when the Son speaks, the Father speaks. And what the Son promises, the Father also promises. So our eternal security, the Father's house, that is a Trinitarian security. Relay all of that back to verse one, do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Why? Because you are as secure in him as he is in his father. Which then brings us to verse 12. Here's the transition. Christ has now grounded his apostles' hope and their assurance in a future heaven. They'll be with him forever. And now Jesus transitions to what life on earth now what that will now look like. In light of that guaranteed glory, Christ now gives heart-calming promises of what we will experience now in this life. So it leads into a third reason, a third promise now. Why Jesus' apostles and all believers need not let their hearts be Trouble, no matter the chaotic world situation that we face, no matter the uncertainty of tomorrow. Here's promise number three. Rather than being troubled in heart and cowering in fear or retreating in panic, Jesus says, be expectant. Be expectant. Why? Because the Lord is using you to carry out his gospel work. 
The Lord is using you to carry out his gospel work. Notice how Jesus begins his promise in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is the 22nd time in John's gospel, Jesus uses this phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. And each time Jesus uses this, it signals that something of weight, of seriousness, is about to follow. Pay close attention to what I'm about to tell you. And there are two reasons why Jesus uses this phrase here. The first reason is because Jesus has already used this phrase during this night in this upper room. But he's used it in a negative way. Look back to John 13, 21. John 13, 21, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, there's a phrase. Well, what's the weighty pronouncement? Here it is, that one of you will betray me. He then ends chapter 13 with this phrase. Look at verse 38. Truly, truly, I say to you, now speaking specifically to Peter, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Jesus looks at his apostles and he says, truly, truly, you are going to fail me. You're going to fail. You'll be spiritually weak on this night. You're going to desert me in fear. That's been the truly, truly message up to this point. But now in verse 12, all of that changes. Jesus says, truly, truly, you will not always be fearful. Truly, truly, your failure will only be for a time. Why? Because when I leave you, look at verse 12, the end of it. When I leave you, I go to the Father. I'll ascend to heaven I'll be seated at my Father's right hand. And when that happens, look at verse 16. I will ask the Father, I will request from my Father something special, better, someone special. And he, the Father, will give you another helper, the Spirit, for you. That the Holy Spirit may be with you you forever, and not just with you, but notice the end of verse 17. He, the Spirit, will be in you. Here's the promise. He will be in you, similar to how I am in the Father, Jesus says, and the Father is in me. My promise to you is that the Spirit will be in you. And when that happens, everything changes. Everything changes. All of your fears and all of your failures will be turned into power and faithfulness. Finish verse 12. Once the Spirit comes, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also and greater works. Just let that sink in. Greater works then these he will do. Why? Because I go to the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, your faithfulness 
Faithlessness will be turned into faithfulness. That's the shift. It's the first reason why he uses this phrase. There's a second reason, though. Second reason, Jesus prefaces this promise with truly, truly, I say to you. Because what follows is such an outlandish promise. Stunning. Over the top. If Jesus didn't doubly promise that they would do greater works, the apostles would have never believed it. And just think about it, greater works than Christ? How's that possible? We have to ask the question, what is Jesus promising here? What is he promising? It's a necessary question because, as you can imagine, this verse has been used in a variety of ways by a variety of denominations and movements to teach a variety of things. It's one of those verses that some look to for the continuation of miracles today. To the word of faith movement, the name it and claim it. Whatever you ask, I'll do it. unpack what Jesus is actually promising here. First of all, first of all, notice who, who this promise is for. This is a promise for he who believes. Verse 12, he who believes. This fits in with the purpose of John's gospel. I write so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. This is for the one who has come to Christ in saving faith, the one who recognizes Christ's majesty, the one who has claimed or the one who has confessed what verse six says, that Jesus is the only way to God, the only truth of God, the only source of eternal life, that no one comes to the Father but through him. We believe that. This is saving faith. For those who believe in the divine nature of Jesus, verse 9, he who has seen Christ has seen the nature of the Father. For the one who believes Christ's Trinitarian relationship, verse 11, that Christ is in the Father and the Father is in him. So what follows in verse 12 is broad enough to include believers. Believers, not just the apostles. It certainly includes those who have come to Christ in saving faith, who have submitted their lives to Jesus as divine son and majestic Lord. But Jesus is speaking specifically to his apostles here, but he has broadened it out. So there's two groups in mind, two groups that fall into this promise. There are the apostles who Jesus is speaking to. And then there are those who will come to faith through the apostles' testimony. This would include us. This is the who of the promise. Notice second. Just as Jesus is speaking about two groups of believers, including two groups of believers here, notice that Jesus is promising two kinds of miracles. Two kinds of miracles. 
The first kind of miracle Jesus promises are the works that I do. Referring to the physical miracles we have seen Jesus perform throughout his life. So wrapped up within this, the healing of the sick, the raising of the dead. And amazingly, the promise is that he, the believer, will do those works also. But notice Jesus' emphasis. His emphasis is not on these physical miracles. In fact, those are actually lesser works that Jesus promises. They're the lesser works. The emphasis here in verse 12 is on a second kind of work, a second kind of miracle described in verse 12 here as greater works. Greater works. Greater in the sense of not more visibly spectacular. That's not the point. Or not more supernatural. That's not the point. I mean, think about it. How can you have a more visibly spectacular miracle than raising the physically dead? That's not what Jesus is promising. How can you have something more supernatural than creating food? That's what God did in Genesis 1. No, the greater works promised here, the greater works are greater in the sense of more eternally significant. More eternally significant than even the physical miracles Jesus performed on earth. If you can imagine that. And the promise is that these greater works, more eternally significant works, he, the believer, will do once Christ ascends to his Father. Jesus moves from the lesser, his physical miracles, to the greater, what will be done later. So how are we to understand Jesus' promise? Again, back to that question. How are we to understand this? How are we to make sense of these promised works, the lesser and the greater? I think it's best, I think it's best to see how Jesus' promise is worked out in the life of the early church until today. I think that's the best way to answer that question. What is Jesus promising? To see what takes place after Christ ascends, after Christ gives his spirit, and then work our way to even today. When we do that, what we find is that the works that I do, the works that Jesus did, the physical miracles Jesus performed, did indeed continue after Jesus' ascension. The apostles certainly experienced this promise firsthand. But here's the key. It was only for a time. It was only for a time. And it was limited, limited to only the apostles and to a select few of believers who were closely associated with the apostles. You can think of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. So think of Acts 3. Acts 3. Only days after Jesus ascended, Peter commanded a lame beggar 
In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple. Well, if you remember back to John chapter 5, this miracle sounds a lot like what Jesus did. When Jesus said to him, this is John 5, when Jesus said to him, a lame man, a beggar, get up, pick up your pallet and walk, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. So Peter performed the very works that Jesus did. And the similarities are astounding. These two miracles, both men were lame, both men were beggars. Both men hear a command to walk, both walk immediately, both are in the vicinity of the temple. It's the works of Christ, Peter performs. Fast forward to Acts chapter nine, where we read that there was a disciple named Tabitha and it happened that she fell sick and died. The disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent a delegation, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows stood beside him weeping. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Once again, this sounds a lot like what Jesus did during his ministry. Think of Luke 9 and note the similarities as I read. Luke 9, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue saying, your daughter has died. There's a delegation that comes. When Jesus heard this, he came to the house. He did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping he, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately. Two women, two illnesses that lead to death, two groups of messengers that were sent out. Women were weeping in the area. Mourners were removed from the room. Those same commands arise. And then two once dead women sit up immediately. Again, Peter was fulfilling Jesus' promise in John 14, performing the physical miracles Jesus performed. The works that I do, you'll do. See this in Acts 20, when Paul raises Eutychus from the dead. You can all thank the Lord that you're not Eutychus. Paul just preached on and on and on, and that's why he fell out of the window and died. I only keep you here for 45 minutes, okay? <laughs> but Paul raises him from the dead. 
like Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. The works that I do, you will do. It's the promise. Acts 5 offers a summary of these early years after Jesus' ascension. Acts 5, 12, at the hands of the apostles, notice the limitation, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. It was only the apostles and those believers close to the apostles were able to perform the same miraculous works Christ performed. In fact, this is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, the signs, the works of a true apostle, what are they? They're signs and wonders and miracles, the supernatural. It's all by design, those supernatural works meant to authenticate the apostles had truly been sent by Christ. But what you find is that as the apostles leave the scene, either through death or imprisonment, the miraculous, the physical miracles also leave the scene with them. In fact, as you work your way through the book of Acts, you see that the physical miracles become non-existent only 10 or 15 years after Pentecost, 10 to 15 years You have Peter healing the sick only days after Jesus ascends, but then later you have both Paul and Timothy suffering from illness with no relief. It's only 30 years later. This is why the book of Hebrews, it was written in the 60s, 30 years after Pentecost. The book of Hebrews refers to physical miracles in the past tense. The works that Christ had done were done but not any longer. They had left the scene. So bring all of that history then, the outworking in the early church, bring that to John 14, verse 12. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. That was fulfilled. Again, fulfilled by the 11 he specifically spoke to on this night and then broadened out a bit to those few who are close to the apostles, including Paul, who was an apostle. But remember, the physical miracles, that first half of this promise in verse 12 was not Jesus's main point. It was not Jesus's emphasis. Jesus's emphasis here is not on the initial fulfillment of his words, no, Jesus' emphasis was on the continuing promise that greater works, greater works than these, greater than my physical miracles, the believer, he will do. This is now where we, 2,000 years after Jesus' ascension, this is where we come into play. No one here No one here can claim the promise to raise someone physically from the dead, okay? No one here can do that. But that's nothing to complain about. That's fine. Because we have a better promise. We have a more spiritually significant 
promise, let's use Jesus's words, we have a greater promise to do a greater work. Again, how can this be? Well, it's because Jesus is talking about the greater work, the greater miracle of conversion, of regeneration, the greater work of the salvation of the sinner that God performs through us, through our testimony, through our witness to Christ. So just let this promise sink in. The Lord has promised to use us for his greater work of salvation. Let's connect this back to verse one. Do not let your heart be troubled. Why? Because Christ has not left us alone. Even though confusion and anarchy may reign around us. And Christ has not left us powerless, though sin seemingly has its way. No, Christ has given us his Holy Spirit and he has left us with his saving gospel. And he has given us this promise in verse 12 that he will use us to continue his saving work. What a privilege. J.C. Ryle has put it this way, there is no greater work possible than the conversion of a soul. None. Salvation from sin is the greater work that is promised here. It's not winning the culture war. And it's not influencing the political sphere. And it's not solving the homeless crisis. And it's not changing the morals of a country. And it's not healing every illness. All of those, all of those pale in comparison to what the Lord has promised to do through us today. In fact, our calling is far greater even, even than the physical miracles of Jesus. Again, how can this be? It's a stunning promise. How is this possible? Well, think about it this way. Our gospel calling, our gospel ministry, now 2,000 years after Christ's ascension, is greater than Christ's physical miracles numerically. Call it numerically. Think of the number of conversions Jesus experienced in his ministry after performing his physical miracles. At the end of three and a half years, there were only 120 believers gathered together in, in a room, certainly more conversions than that, but that's the number we're given. When you follow John's gospel, what you find is that most heard Jesus and then left him, abandoned him, back to John 11 just for a moment. You find the absurd. Jesus, John 11, raises Lazarus from the dead. Verse 43, Lazarus come forth. Verse 44, the man who had died came forth. 
Verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. There is faith, but notice, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. They hate what Jesus did. It's an amazing thought. That's how hard the unbeliever's heart is. You have those who reject Christ. John 6, most abandon him. And yet, what do we find on the opening pages of Acts? Once the Spirit has come, Peter preaches only one sermon on only one day, and 3,000 turn to Christ in saving faith. It's 25 times more than the 120 at the end of Jesus' ministry. That's a number that has only increased exponentially over these 2,000 years. This is numerical greatness. You can also think of our gospel ministry today, how it's greater than Christ's physical miracles geographically. Geographically, Jesus ministered primarily within the boundaries of Palestine. And yet now through us, Christ's gospel has circled the globe. It's what Jesus promised in Acts chapter one, you will receive power. When I ascend to heaven, you will receive power. How so? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. It's exactly what Jesus promised in John 14, 12. And what's the result? You shall be my witnesses. You'll do the greater work, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. That was the extent of Jesus's ministry. But then Jesus adds even to the remotest parts of the earth, geographical greatness. How about scope? Greater in scope. Jesus ministered almost exclusively to the Jews. Why? Because salvation belonged to the Jews. He's the promised Messiah. But now today, the gospel is proclaimed to both Jew and Gentile. We're recipients of that. How about impressiveness? You're going to say, Slyman, you've lost your mind. Impressiveness. Our gospel ministry greater than Christ and it's impressiveness. Crazy thought. But hear me out here. Even though Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead, those who were healed physically still died physically. Lazarus died again. But our ministry, when we proclaim the gospel, the Lord through us raises the spiritually dead. What is greater than giving physical sight to the physically blind? It's giving spiritual sight to the spiritually blind. What's greater than giving physical health to the infirmed? It's giving a new heart to the totally depraved. And that is what the Lord does through us. That's the privilege, the promise. Think of 2 Corinthians chapter four. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord. That's our proclamation. We point people to Jesus. That's our testimony. 
We proclaim him. And through that proclamation, God, God here, he works. The same God who said light shall shine out of darkness, the same creator at the very beginning now creates once again. The very God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who shines in our hearts, gives sight to the spiritually blind. And we are allowed to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The Spirit doing that greater work through our gospel testimony. This is greater impressiveness, if I can put it that way. Our ministry is and calling is even greater theologically. Theologically. Because we have the privilege to proclaim the finished work of Christ. The finished work. The victorious resurrection of Jesus. The triumphant ascension of our Savior. The glorious return of our King. That's our message. That's our gospel. And if you're keeping score at home, this is number six. Our gospel ministry is also greater in its effects. It's in its effects. Because when someone responds to the gospel today, something happens that did not take place in both the Old Testament or even when Jesus walked this earth. When someone responds to the gospel we proclaim, the Holy Spirit actually enters them. That's verse 17, the promise. John 14, 17. You, the apostles, you know him. You know the Holy Spirit because he abides with you. But here's the promise. This same spirit that abides with you will what? One day be in you. Spirit will indwell you and seal you. That's why Paul called the Spirit's indwelling the mystery. It's been hidden in ages past. It's a mystery. It did not take place under the old covenant. This is new covenant language, promise. But now, once Christ lived and died and resurrected and ascended, now... That mystery has been manifested, experienced by every believer. And what is that mystery? What is that promise? That Christ, through his spirit, now resides in us. Look at John 14 here. If that's not amazing enough, Jesus actually takes this indwelling of the spirit. He says the spirit will indwell You have there Paul's statement that Christ through his spirit will reside in the believer, but notice what Jesus does now in verse 23. He includes the Father too. Jesus says we, speaking of himself and the Father, we will come to him, will come to the believer and make our abode, our dwelling, our home with him. 
the effects of our gospel proclamation now that Christ has ascended are even greater than the ministry of Christ when he walked this earth. Because through the Holy Spirit, the entire Trinity now resides in the believer. Are you beginning, beginning to understand how stunning a promise this is? Staggering. The apostles at this point in the night thought they were losing Jesus. Couldn't fathom it. They thought he was leaving them. That may be our thought today. We look around our world, we might be tempted to ask, where are you, Lord? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you working? Maybe you're wondering, has Christ forgotten us? Has he left us alone? When the truth of the matter is, though Christ has left us physically, he right now indwells us spiritually. And he has given us the privilege and the calling and the power to do even greater works than he did while he walked this earth. The privilege of being a part of the Spirit's work of conversion and continuing his greater gospel work. He has called us to be instruments through which he, the Savior, will bring his salvation to our world. J.C. Ryle summarizes it this way, let us admire the condescension of our master in allowing to the ministry of his weak servants more success than his own. And thus let us work on in faith and expect great things, right? Do not let your heart be troubled by the world around us. Do not be frightened. Don't be expectant. Expectant that Christ's gospel changes hearts. Though we feel weak and lonely, troubled in heart, though we feel weak and lonely, like the disciples, never forget, and we must remember, our Lord is working with us and for us and through us. Though we cannot see him but he indwells and he seals and he works. Oh, don't retreat from the world. Don't retreat from the world. And just in case we are tempted to become puffed up by these greater works, look at the works that I have been called to do. Just in case we ever think that Christ needs us for his ministry, Jesus reminds his apostles, the only reason for any gospel success we might enjoy, the only reason and the true power of our gospel message, finish verse 12, is because Jesus says, I go to the Father. Your works are still my works. Though I am absent, I am still active. I'm 
sitting at my Father's right hand and sovereignly changing hearts through my Holy Spirit. This is why our hearts need not be troubled in the midst of chaos and in the midst of sin. This is why we must not retreat in fear and withdraw from our world. That's the temptation, isn't it? This is why we must not grow quiet when the gospel is threatened. Because even though we do not have the power to perform the physical miracles of Jesus, and even though we cannot physically raise someone from the dead like Jesus, we have been given the greater. We have been given Christ's gospel and Christ's spirit that together can do the utterly impossible. It gives sight to the spiritually blind, hearing to the spiritually deaf, and life to the spiritually dead. And so Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe me, be expectant. Be active, be vocal for your Lord, for our Savior, for his gospel. Why? Because the Lord has promised to use us. What a privilege. The Lord has promised to use us to carry out his gospel work. Leads into verses 13 and 14. We'll pick it up there next week. Father, you have given us a tremendous calling, but you have not left us alone. Lord, we confess that we have not been expectant for you to work. We confess our questions. Confess our silence. Through this promise, give us change and give us that gospel purpose and calling that we indeed would, verse one, believe in Jesus, believe this promise. Be used by you to carry on your saving work. thank you that you have opened our eyes to see your glory in the face of Christ. If there's any here who has not been given those spiritual eyes to see Jesus in truth, do that now. That we would rejoice that you are indeed raising the spiritually dead unto newness of life in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.